greater discourse at Asafura. And now since there has been some gap of time since we broke off the class, then I'll do a little review of what we have covered. The Buddha begins this discourse by telling the monks, the bhikkhus, that they should strive to live up to their designation of, of samana, of being recluse or ascetic. And then the Buddha is going to explain, he, the Buddha says that you should train us we will undertake and practice those things that make one an ascetic, that make one a Brahmin, so that that designation of ascetic will be true and genuine. Then he raises the question, what are the things that make one a true ascetic? And he enumerates one after another in the same kind of pattern. And he begins with two twin qualities, which are called Hiri and Otepa, the sense of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing. These two qualities are the basis or foundation of morality, of sila, since it's a sense of one's own honor, which is the meaning of Hiri, and fear of the evil consequences of wrongdoing that prevent one from engaging in immoral conduct and that protect one from a moral dissipation. That's why the Buddha calls these two qualities of Hiri and Otapa the Loka Paladhanas, the states that protect the world. Okay, then in the next series of passages, the Buddha speaks of the components of sila itself, which are right bodily conduct, right verbal conduct, right mental conduct, and right livelihood. Okay, so with section two, we come to what corresponds to the sila section of the Noble Eightfold Path. And now, in the next passage of the Sutta, the Buddha speaks of three practices or three qualities which we might consider to be transitional factors leading to concentration, samadhi. These are three factors which are not directly concerned with the concentrating of the mind. And so they're not fully in the domain of samadhi, but they form a kind of bridge between moral discipline and concentration. They are, I would say they represent an internalization of the process of purification, of inward purification. 
through restraint of the senses, one exercises control over the senses, or properly over the mind in its response to the data of the senses. So that instead of always being intent on the pleasant objects and always disturbed by unpleasant objects, one is able to endure pleasure and pain without being shaken by them. Then moderation in eating is literally, the Pali means, knowing the right amount in eating, which is taking sufficient food to keep the body healthy, but not indulging in the pleasures of taste for its own sake. And then the third is mindfulness and full awareness or clear comprehension in the day-to-day activities of daily life. And by that continuous practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension, mindfulness and full awareness, then one is building up that presence of mind, that attentiveness, which forms a solid foundation for the development of concentration, samadhi. Oh, I think. Yeah, there are actually four transitional factors. The additional one, which comes before mindfulness and full awareness, is called wakefulness, jagariya. And the Buddha explains that as that the disciple, when he's striving in meditation, he spends the day sitting or walking back and forth, clearing the mind of obstructive states. And then during the night, he divides the night into three watches or three portions. In the first watch, Again, he sits and walks, clearing the mind of obstructive states. In the middle part of the night, he will lie down in what's called the lion posture on the right side to fall asleep, having made the determination to wake up early without indulging in long hours of sleep. Then in the last watch of the night, Again, he practices walking back and forth and sitting to clear the mind of obstructive states. And actually, in my, I think I explained this last time, in my own view, even though for the sake of convenience, wakefulness or jagariya is placed here, I think it actually belongs properly in the next section of the sutta in connection with the clearing of the mind of the five hindrances, since the obstructive states that have to be eliminated are in fact the five hindrances. (coughs) Okay, so that brings us up to the point where we are (coughs) ready to continue. Okay, now after the Buddha has explained the practice of mindfulness and awareness, he says to the monks, 
And here at the bottom of page, what's given here is page 318, in paragraph 11. Now, bhikkhus, you may think thus, we are possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing. Our bodily conduct, verbal conduct, mental conduct, and livelihood have been purified. We guard the doors of our sense faculties. We are moderate in eating. We are devoted to wakefulness and we are possessed of mindfulness and full awareness. That much is enough, that much has been done. The goal of the ascetic life has been reached. There is nothing more for us to do, and you may rest content with that much. I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the ascetic status, do not fall short of the goal of asceticism while there is still more to be done. And what more is to be done? Here a bhikkhu resorts to a secluded resting place, the forest, the root of a tree, etc. <clears throat> On returning from his alms round after his meal, he sits down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, and establishing mindfulness before him. These are the preliminaries for the struggle against the five hindrances. First, one resorts to a secluded resting place, and if one doesn't have an absolutely secluded place, <laughs> then it can just be any quiet room in your house where you won't be disturbed. Then one, well, here it's given after the meal, then one sits down, folding the legs crosswise, setting the body erect, and setting up mindfulness. And now comes the direct effort to get rid of the five hindrances. Abandoning covetousness for the world, he abides with a mind free from covetousness. He purifies his mind from covetousness. Abandoning ill will and hatred, he abides with a mind free from ill will, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. He purifies his mind from ill will and hatred. Abandoning sloth and torpor, he abides free from sloth and torpor, percipient of light, mindful and fully aware. He purifies his mind from sloth and torpor. Abandoning here restlessness and remorse, or restlessness and worry, he abides unagitated with a mind inwardly peaceful. He purifies his mind from restlessness and remorse. Abandoning doubt, he abides, having gone beyond doubt, unperplexed about wholesome states. He purifies his mind from doubt. Okay, this paragraph gives very concisely, just in a nutshell, a process which is actually, in reality, a long, drawn-out and difficult struggle except for those who have very mature paramis from many previous lives. 
This is the effort to overcome and eliminate five factors, five mental states, which the Buddha has grouped together as being the main obstruction to the development of both concentration and wisdom or insight. And because these states are obstructions or impediments, he calls them in Pali Nivarana, the Pancha Nivarana. The Pali word Nivarana suggests the idea of that which keeps one hemmed in bound up, oppressed or obstructed. And the Buddha says that these five hindrances are defilements of the mind, ceto upakilesa, defilements of the mind which obstruct mental tranquility or concentration and which prevent the growth of panya, of wisdom. And so to make progress in the development of mental tranquility and insight, wisdom, these five hindrances have to be gradually overcome and eliminated. And all the different meditation practices that are taught in Buddhism particularly in the preliminary phase leading up to insight, are means of gradually debilitating and overcoming the five hindrances. (coughs) Now the Buddha is like a physician who diagnoses the illness of the patients. Different patients have different illnesses, and so they need different medicines. And therefore the Buddha diagnoses humankind, and he finds the different illnesses in the minds of human beings. And since different people have different illnesses, they need different medicines. And so the Buddha has prepared different medicines according to the different illnesses of people. These five hindrances are like five general types of of illness. And the Buddha has devised different medicines to eliminate these illnesses. And those different medicines are different kamatanas or meditation subjects. In some people, one hindrance will be strong and the others will be (coughs) recessive. For that person, one meditation subject will be appropriate. For another person, he will not be afflicted so much with the first illness, but he'll have another illness. Therefore, he needs a different meditation subject. And so the Buddha, through his Sabanyutanyana, has seen all the different 
call it, anusayas and asayas, the different latent corruptions and different proclivities of people. And by comprehending all the different mental temperaments and inclinations, he's come up with this very comprehensive pharmacy shop of meditation subjects. And here the Buddha enumerates the five main type of illnesses, five main types of illness. And to overcome each of these illnesses, there will be particular types of meditation or particular types of practice to be undertaken. Generally, in the Buddhist practice, meditation practice tradition, in order to understand the working of one's own mind first, one will begin not with a meditation topic fitted for a particular illness, but just with something which is completely colorless that will show you the working of your own mind. This completely colorless, odorless, tasteless meditation subject will be mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. That's why it's called the mulakamatana, the fundamental meditation subject. Because it's completely characterless in itself. And yet it has a very important function just like a catalyst in chemistry. That is, it enables you to see what the mind is dwelling upon, how the mind abides from thought to thought. If one doesn't have a colorless meditation subject like Anapanasati and just engages in day-to-day activities, then we can have all sorts of illusions about ourselves. We don't understand the working of our own mind. This is like having a dark room in which dust can be gathering and settling and all the furniture will be covered with dust and there might be termites eating away at the furniture and unhealthy air in the room and the room might be all in a disarray things thrown out of their proper place and if the room is completely dark then one is not aware that there's anything wrong with it but if we open the window pull up the shade then sunlight comes flooding into the room the sunlight again it's colorless, odorless, tasteless, but it shows everything that's in disorder in the room. It shows where there are tables and chairs that have to be dusted. It shows you where there is moldy articles that have to be put out in the sunlight. It shows you where things have been put, just thrown on the floor or put in the wrong place and where things have to be tidied up. And so, opening the windows of the mind, 
opening the shades of the mind and letting the sunlight flood in would be taking a subject like Anapanasati, where you just try to keep the mind focused upon something which is happening naturally all the time, breathing in and breathing out. And when you do this, then you begin to see that it's not so easy to keep the mind just focused on the breath, but the mind starts roaming and wandering, becoming engaged in other thoughts, dwelling on the past, memories of the past, plans and projects for the future. And as one goes on observing the mind and noting these thoughts, one can discern the repeated patterns of one's own mind. Different people will have different mental patterns. And now to comprehend one's own mental direction, one takes a grid and puts it over one's thought process. That grid is the five hindrances, or the list of the five hindrances. When one takes the five hindrances, and uses that to inspect one's own mind, then one can see where the mind is constantly veering towards. In the case of some people, these are people that we would call raga charita, lustful type or desiring type. The mind is often dwelling on thoughts of desire, covetousness, craving, sometimes sensual desire, sometimes desire for possessions, position, power, whatever. But the pro bent of the mind, the proclivity of the mind, is towards desire. Other people will, their mind will not be so much troubled by thoughts of desire, though those thoughts of course will come, but these will be people who are who so often dwell on thoughts of anger, resentment, bitterness, hostility. When they sit to try to keep the mind on the breath, going in and out, they begin to think of the friction that they've entered into in their relations with others, the quarrels and disputes they have, the disagreements with so-called friends and relatives. These are people in whom the dominant character trait is dosa, hatred, or bhyapada, ill will. Those are actually, these first two, desire and ill will, those are called the main hindrances, the powerful hindrances. So very often when the Buddha is describing the process of mental purification, he just speaks about eliminating abhija dominasan, covetousness and <coughs> ill will, or chanda and bhyapada, 
desire and ill will. The other three hindrances are the minor hindrances, but they're also disturbing factors of the mind. That is sloth and torpor. This is dullness, drowsiness, heaviness of the mind. In some people this is a very dominant trait. Their minds do not flood with sensual desire too much. Of course, when there's laziness then sensuality will come in. But it's not their predominant problem. And also their minds don't bubble up so much with ill will and anger, but they're very dull and drowsy. And so when they sit to <laughs> meditate, after a little while, sometimes 15 or 20 minutes, then the mind becomes dull, heavy and cloudy, and they want to drift off to sleep. And even for somebody who doesn't have that as a persistent problem, but still for anyone that will come up from time to time. The fourth hindrance is just the opposite of dullness, of sloth and torpor. Not the good, wholesome opposite of wakefulness and alertness, but restlessness and worry, or mental agitation. Here the mind is always just anxious and worried and unable to stand still, just thinking about this, thinking about that, one thought replacing another, just in a completely chaotic pattern without any kind of rationale underlying the succession of thoughts. This is a very disturbing even painful disposition of the mind. And so the mind is just just like a person who sits down on a hot stone and he sits on the hot stone he just jumps up and runs off. So whenever the mind tries to focus on anything it just jumps and runs, jumps and runs. And then the fifth of the hindrances, which is a very powerful obstruction for progress, is doubt. Not doubt in the sense of having questions about the Dhamma, or doubt about how to proceed with one's practice, but this is what we might call skeptical doubt, not being able to place trust or confidence in the teacher, the Buddha, or in the teaching, the Dhamma, or in the Arya Sangha, in the sense that one has confidence and trust that there are people who have reached the stage of liberated ones, Arahats, and other noble beings. And then having doubt about the practice or training not being a doubt question whether this practice and training is really going to lead one to the goal, 
to the end of suffering. <clears throat> and when this obstruction of doubt comes up, then it's just like one has been walking along a straight path through the wilderness, say, and <clears throat> one has a fixed destination, and suddenly the road branches off into two other roads which look exactly the same, a left road and a right road. And you, somebody has given you, say, a map for finding your way, and <clears throat> in his map he didn't indicate that there was a branch, a fork in the road. And so as you're going along, you come to the split in the road and you don't know where to go. Maybe he's indicated certain landmarks and you're walking and you see a split in the road and so you start on the right-hand road. You look around and you don't see any landmarks that he indicated. So you, after a few miles, then you get discouraged and turn back come back to the fork, you go along the left road, you walk, you don't see the landmarks, and you come back, and you just don't know which way to go. So you just cannot go on either road. Always, as soon as you start walking, left or right, questions, doubts come up. Okay, so these are the five major obstructions. And for overcoming these obstructions, these five hindrances, there are methods. For some people, the way to overcome the hindrances, if they've started with Anapanasati will be just to continue with it, just to keep on strengthening one's effort, say aspirin or some general antibiotic to overcome some illness that comes up. But when there are very special illnesses, then one can't use disprin or Panadol or a general antibiotic but then you have to go to the doctor and get very specific medical treatment. And so for those who notice certain particular traits in their <coughs> mental makeup that are very obstructive and persistent in their character and that keep on undermining their efforts to persist along the road of Anapanasati, then they have to come to the great physician, the Buddha, and say, Venerable Sir, I have such and such a problem, what should I do about it? Then the Buddha has his medicine chest, and he will prescribe the medicine that's right for the illness. And for covetousness, for sensual desire, he has a very very powerful, very specific medicine. Actually, we say a 
compartment in which there are several different medicines. One medicine especially intended for sensuality in the form of sexual desire. This is specifically for, for monks and nuns and that is the medicine called Asuba Bhavana or in singular it's called Pilikula Bhavana and Pali Patikula Bhavana the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body so Asuba Bhavana involves taking the image of a body it's advised to begin with with one's own body taking getting a visual image of that body and then using the mental eye to cut it open and dissect it into its component parts of course <laughs> one might have trouble doing that without having any concrete or visual image of the body so for that purpose one can <coughs> go to get perhaps a book, a medical textbook, or go to <laughs> the mortuary and observe an autopsy. This is often done by monks. And one sees the body in terms of the component parts. In the Satipatthana Sutta and elsewhere, the Buddha enumerates 31 parts to which the tradition adds the brain to give us 32 parts. I've spoken about this subject before, so I won't go through all the 32 parts. But one starts seeing the body seemingly so attractive and beautiful in terms just of one sees the skin, and one opens the skin, and there's muscle, sinews, bones, bone marrow, then the various organs, kidney, heart, liver, mesentery, intestines, stomach, excrement, and the fluids like pus, blood, sweat, fat. And then by focusing the mind over and over again, up and down on these 32 parts, one sees the body as just the combination of these unattractive, even repulsive organs and tissues. And when this is done repeatedly, persistently, then sensual desire grows weaker and weaker until it becomes suppressed or abandoned. Okay, that is the medicine for desire or covetousness in the specific form of <coughs> sensual desire. But then people have other types of desire. Desire for possessions, power, status, wealth. To overcome that kind of desire, a very powerful medicine is also prescribed by the Buddha. Mm. 
that is maranasati, the meditation on death, contemplation of death. So when the mind is persistently getting hooked on thoughts of desire for the things of the world, the non-sensual acquisitions, worldly acquisitions, then one reflects that death is inevitable, that I must die, I cannot escape death, that death can come at any time. The time of death is completely unfixed and uncertain. And when I die, then I have to give up everything, all possessions, all external status, all loved ones, friends, relations, and even this very body itself I have to give up. So if one lets the mind repeatedly focus and contemplate this thought of death, this idea of death, then interest and attachment to the things of the world will be chipped away, knocked away. And I should also mention that these medicines or meditation subjects are useful not only as full-time meditation <laughs> subjects or main meditation subjects, but it's useful to do one or another of these contemplations even for short periods just on a day-to-day -day basis. The Buddha recommends in the Anguttara Nikaya five contemplations for all of his disciples, both householders and renunciants. Amongst these are three that chip away at that force of desire. The thought that I am bound to grow old, Jaradhamoni Jaramanatita, that I am subject to aging, to growing old, and that I cannot escape old age. That I am subject to illness and have not escaped illness. And marana damonhi, maranam anatita. That I am subject to death and have not escaped death. So if one does these brief contemplations, even briefly, then day by day it's building up an imprint in one's mind, a force in one's mind which protects the mind from the attractive lore of worldly enjoyment. It says in the, the Dhammapada, the Buddha says that just as one can fill a bucket even when one drop after another is coming into a bucket, 
If you leave it long enough, then the bucket will get full with water. And so, just day by day, a few thoughts come into the mind just for a brief period that I'm subject to old age, subject to illness, subject to death. And so, when that is done, it will erode the force of worldly attachment and it will give one a inner strength an inner resistance to sorrow and grief when these things happen. In fact, it's happening all the time that we are growing older and older and older and at any time illness can come and at any time death Okay, so in this very concise presentation, in this sutta, the Buddha doesn't indicate the specific remedies for sensual desire, for covetousness, but in other suttas he does, and so we can apply those here. Okay, now we come to the second of the five hindrances. This is ill will and hatred. And here he indicates the remedy for that, that the disciple abides with a mind free from ill will, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. So for those whose mind dwells on anger, ill will, resentment and hatred, then the remedy that the Buddha prescribes is the practice called metta bhavana. This is the thought or the mental development of loving kindness, the wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings. So when one finds the mind repeatedly disturbed by anger, resentment, ill will, then one might take up as a regular practice the meditation on loving-kindness. One begins by thinking of oneself, radiating thoughts to oneself, may I be well, may I be happy, free from harm and suffering, then one will take other people, beginning with friends, and close relations, wishing that they will be well, happy, free from suffering, then going on to people who are mere acquaintances, then neutral people, and even hostile people, until one can radiate loving-kindness to all living beings. Okay, so that is the direct remedy for ill-will and hatred. Okay, perhaps I will stop here and we'll take the remaining hindrances next week.
the remaining hindrances and the sim- very good similes we have in this. Okay, are there any questions on that's not exactly the same as Marana Sati. That is one has one comes across that passage in the Satipatthana Sutta in which the different stages of decomposition are mentioned. And then also one has in the Visuddhimagga method or system focusing on the body in different stages of decomposition. These are actually types of Asubha Bhavana. They're different from the Asubha Bhavana in terms of the 32 parts, but they're types of Asubha Bhavana. Maranasati is really should be the specific thought that I am subject to death. One has to get the sense of one's own bondage to death. But one can also, actually, in the Satipatthana, the method that's described in the Satipatthana Sutta, one does have it sort of veering towards a Marana Sati, in that when one sees the corpse and the state, body is of that nature and is not beyond that. And so in that way it would become, it's not really directly marana sati, but it's sort of tending in that direction. Because when it's not in marana sati, one has to generate the idea of oneself is undergoing death, whereas in the Satipatthana method the emphasis is more that one's body is subject to that state. But there is some similarity. Any other Yeah, of course. In that case, I would say that it's not advisable to persist with Maranasati if one finds it too causing too much agitation or disturbance. Then one has to strengthen the mind in other ways until one is. One is able to overcome that disturbance over the thought. So it might, one might begin just with the daily reflection of that I am subject to death. I'm not. A, I have not escaped death, and just let the mind dwell very lightly on that, without persisting with that contemplation and pushing it through to the point where it causes agitation. I would say to go in this sort of smooth and natural way, not to force oneself into a way that causes distress and agitation. 
Excuse me? Yeah. So also one has to recognize, and this is where one has to use one's own judgment, one has to recognize that when one starts to do this contemplation, there will come a natural resistance to it. And when that natural resistance comes, one shouldn't immediately surrender <laughs> and say, I give up. <laughs> but one should try to persist a little bit and then just see. And if one can overcome it, then one can persist. But if one finds that it's really causing upset stomach and agitation and insomnia, then one should just let it go and take up something which is peaceful and soothing to the mind. One has to recognize the Buddha's path, it's a gradual path, and the Buddha doesn't try to force anybody to take up a practice for which they're not completely well prepared. I remember also a certain departure, he was once asked how he crossed the street, he said he was not struggling. Yeah, no. Otherwise, he would sink into the water. Yeah, yeah. I think we have to avoid the precipice and of this. Yeah. To find the meat point. Yeah. Now, people would get to the pessimistic view and then start suffering with that. Pessimism? Yeah. Okay, do you plant regular plants for eating? 
celebrate in the clubs. In the clubs, I see. <laughs> so one is optimism and pessimism is a matter of uh, a subjective judgment. I think what's said in the Visuddhi Magga is that one should eat to the point where one will be aware that there's enough room to take four or five more bowls of food, then one stops and drinks water. That's to avoid overeating, but it's not to confine oneself to four or five bowls of food. No, there's no, no amounts are given in the text since that varies very much from one person to another, depending on their physical size, metabolism rate. But I mean, if you release all the whole day, you just sit down into samadhi, you don't do much in this way, so you don't need as much. One doesn't need as much, no. But one shouldn't confine oneself to a particular amount which might be insufficient. And also when one is doing intensive practice, after some time one comes to know just intuitively when one has enough and when if you take more it will become (laughs) the cause of sloth and torpor. And if you don't take enough then it will become the cause of feeling hungry later. (laughs) Okay, I think we should stop now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.